This is Directional, a podcast about video games and the creative rebellion. Chantal Ryan and Jörg Tittle. Everybody, um, welcome on a new episode of Directional. And here is my partner in crime, Chantal. Hi, I'm Chantal, your lyrical anthropologist slash game dev slash studio director of We Have Always Lived in the Forest. I'm Jörg Tittel. And geez, you know, my name always sounds weird when other people actually pronounce it correctly. And it's I, I'll never get used to it. It's awful. But uh, I'm, I'm a, it's this horrible life. I'm telling you, it's, it's been a, it's a midlife crisis. I finally realized, you know, oh God, my name sucks. But half- <laughs> German, half Polish, weirdo, and a game designer and film director and um, talker of about things, which is here we are. And uh, but because you don't want to listen to me for too long, um, I wanted to introduce you to someone very special and very inspiring, and someone who has given me a lot of uh, actually hope over the last few months since I've read their book, and it's. Uh, Paris Marx. Uh, Hello. Paris Marx, Thanks so much for having me. Paris. Paris, tell us about yeah. Paris. Um, yeah, I, I write a lot about uh, why the tech industry sucks um, and why Elon Musk in particular is the worst uh, person in the world. Um, I host a podcast called Tech Won't Save Us. And yeah, I wrote a book called Road to Nowhere, What Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About the Future of Transportation. And I think those are like, you know, some of the key things. <laughs> Those are some achievements right there. Uh, you know what's really interesting is is before we kick this off, this is a very important ground rule. We have no rules on directional except for one, because Chantal slapped me down real hard this weekend as I sort of went on another one of my Elon Musk sucks rants. And she said to me, uh, you know what? Can we please stop talking about these white, rich assholes uh, especially this one in particular. There's so many more important things, interesting things to talk about. So basically, I'm really sorry, Paris, because I don't know if you've just written a book about this vile <laughs> creature. But uh, we're not allowed to talk about Elon Musk on the show. So we'll have all sorts of really interesting roundabout ways of talking about them as if they weren't here um, or as if they didn't exist, probably. Um, Sounds good. Sounds good. It's a challenge. It is. This is the <laughs> directional challenge. What direction away can we take this? Yes. I mean, can we take, can we, first of all, Paris, I mean, this was my, well, first of all, your book is brilliant because it made me realize things about the circular nature of, of human injustice that, I wasn't, and since it's about, you know, revolving around things that have wheels on them, no, but the circular nature of human injustice in the sense that we have been repeating the same capitalist patterns of, um, here's this sort of moderately innovative um, piece of tech. Uh, wouldn't that be cool? Sure, but only if we attach a bunch of like horrific 
completely inefficient and ultimately uh, demeaning mechanics to it in order to make more money and subvert and subdue more people. Um, only then will this become a valuable product. And then let's keep doing this over and over again. And your book goes into that. And could you just give us like a very brief sort of summary of the history of the automobile, which because you've done, you do it so beautifully. And of course, I don't want to reduce people to not reading your book because there's so much more to get to it. But, but yes. Yeah, you know, I, I think the history is fascinating, right? Because I could have written the book and just talked about what's happened in the past 10 or 15 years. But I think that by going back even further, it gives a better insight into, you know, how we got to this place where we are today. And it also helps to kind of denormalize that situation as well, right? Because it's easy to look at how we get around to say, oh, you know, a ton of people use cars. They've been using cars for a long time. It's just always going to be this way, always will be this way. And it is this way because people like it, right? Um, and and that's kind of the narrative that we're often told. We adopted the cars because we actually, as humans, love cars so much. Um, and it's not because you know of capitalism or anything else. And so I think it's really fascinating then to go back to the early 20th century when the car is really rolling out. And what you have is you know, a, a real fight around what that's going to look like because the streets before then, you know, certainly not to say everything was perfect, but they were kind of shared spaces where a lot of people were using them in different ways, right? People were walking on them, taking bikes on them, taking streetcars, taking horse-drawn carriages. You know, there were street vendors selling things. There were kids playing on the street, especially on the side streets. You know, all these sorts of things were happening on the space that later just gets taken over pretty much exclusively by the car, right? And so when the car is introduced, it starts to push all of these different forms of transportation off of it because it goes faster than everything else that's on the road and creates a particular kind of danger. You know, a lot of uh, children and young women in particular start to be killed by cars and that creates a real backlash. So there are people in cities who are saying, you know, this is not how our city should be designed. This is not how our transport system should be designed um, because it's having real material consequences for those of us who live here, because it's important to recognize that, especially in those early days, the car was an object that was owned by the wealthy in the city. Um, and so, you know, the, the working class in particular was uh, feeling the brunt of the harm that was coming as a result of it. Um, and so there was a real showdown, right? People did organize to fight the car, to try to stop the car's rollout, to try to restrict um, its speeds and, and the degree to which it could actually take over the transport system. But then you also had, you know, a concerted group of you know, commercial interests who really wanted their product to take over because it would be beneficial to automakers who could make more oil companies who could fuel them, uh, various suppliers, and later on, you know, construction interests who would build roads and, and suburban communities and all these sorts of things, right? There were a whole load of interests that got associated with it because they could profit from this transformation. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that that is important to recognize because it changes some of the narrative that we, some of the, uh, you know, the common narrative that we have about the history of the car and really illustrates how, you know, the transport system as we have it today came to be, um, who actually benefited from that transition. And it also leaves open the question, you know, if there was a particular kind of contest to arrive where we are today, does the transport system need to stay the same as it is now? Or can we start to think about how we might change it so it would work better for the public, create better communities and things like that? So I guess that's kind of the history there, but happy to dig into more <laughs> if you want. <laughs> that's a, I love, I love the way the 
way your mind has gone on this. This is actually a, you know, an unexpectedly relevant topic for me lately because I am the mother of an eight-year-old and I am really very big on independence. Um, as an anthropologist, I, you know, I've studied across cultures and I've been particularly interested in the way that people raise children across cultures. And something that I've been thinking a lot about lately is that um, the the constant fact and threat of cause nearly everywhere we go today has had such a like deleterious effect on children today because there is what is essentially the equivalent of a predator um, constantly roaming our streets. That threat of the car is ever-present and so... Um, I don't feel safe to do things like let my young child play in front of our house unsupervised. Like I have to be out there with him because I'm worried that in some, you know, small little slip of attention, which, you know, as like an eight-year-old or younger or even a little bit older, their brains are still developing. They don't always have that kind of like constant attention span. Just one slip and they can run in front of a car and they can die. And when I look back at human history and other cultures and the way that humanity has lived for the vast, vast majority of our existence, we actually haven't had that constant threat of the predator in our designated community spaces. We have defended against those predators largely. So it's actually been very strange to begin to identify that we have invited these essential predators into the heart of our communities and cultivated their presence to the point that our children can no longer do things like be trusted to walk a few blocks to school on their own or roam around with their friends because it just takes that one second to take them out. But it's also then created this um, uh, this infrastructure in which the only points where you are safe are either your uh, confinement, uh, your, 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 your house in which you're now entrapped, or the commercial spaces to which all the highways lead. That's where you're supposed. That's where you're gonna feel safe. As soon as you go into that mall, your kids will be able to run around in there freely, spend their whole day just shopping. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's sick. It's like when you really think about what we've built as a as a as a landscape. The fact that we've dripped, we've created these beasts, we've built these beasts that that drive us. We don't drive them. Like we, especially now that they're becoming or they're being threatened with automation and self driving. Self-driving means you have no more fucking decision power whatsoever. This thing will take you to the mall, whether you like it or not. <laughs> you will shop. Um, Interview ads on the way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sexy. <laughs> It, it it is fascinating though, right? Because there's so many things that I can that I can pick up on there. Um, I I want to pick up on the stuff about the children though, because I think that's so important and it's really fascinating to me, right? Because you know, as you say, there is this predator in our communities. Um, cars are 
one of, if not the leading cause of death of children um, in developed countries, also developing countries. Um, and, you know, on top of that, when you think about the narratives that we have around safety in our communities, we so often don't talk about the car at all. And instead, you know, you'll hear kind of the the things like, oh, there might be serial killers or mm -hmm. pedophiles that we need to watch out for. Or like recently, um, you know, here in North America, we had Halloween, of course. Um, and <laughs> the big narrative was that there might be fentanyl in the Halloween candy that the children's might that the children uh, might yes, get when they go to the different doors. From the race of blades. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the exactly. danger of Halloween. Yeah. But but then when you look at the stats, it's like, you know, there were all these news stories about rainbow fentanyl and, and the risk that it might be in the, the candy. Then like in the days after Halloween, there were stories like, oh, yeah, there was actually no rainbow fentanyl there. But what we do know is that Halloween is the deadliest day of the year for kids and, and children when it comes to being killed by cars. It's the day where car deaths absolutely spike because you have all these kids who are out, you know, getting candy, you know, often it's past dark when they would be out there. So the visibility is lower. Um, and so that threat, that very real material threat is not discussed. Instead, we're always distracted by these things that like, you know, maybe there's some like very small risk of something like that. Um, but the real danger to the children is often what is perceived to be keeping them safe, right? Uh, parents driving their kids to school because they're scared that something might happen to them, that they might get kidnapped mm -hmm. or something on the way, when actually they're at a much greater risk of like being harmed because they're in that car in the first place. So these kind of things are totally fascinating to me. But of course, now after that horrible disaster in South Korea, people will say that it's much more dangerous to go to public events and gather on your feet. So uh, they'll be using that one as well. Halloween is no longer uh, the car threat will now also be brushed under the carpet. I mean, I, it is it is weird. It is it is strange to live. I actually I realized these patterns in myself during these two years of lockdown. I have this neighbor who's one of those very showy guys who always wants to show that he's super dad. So he has like one of those bicycles has like three seats on it. Has to show everyone <laughs> how whatever. But then you, sort of, you look into his window and they, he actually has a maid that actually dressed in like old school maid clothing that oh, serves him no. tea. No yes. way. <laughs> it, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very, it's very, he's a very odd person. And thanks for listening to my podcast, neighbor. Um, <laughs> but, but occasionally his kids would be playing in the street, like just down the road, like in the middle of the street. And I was thinking, I was like, like, you know, what, what a careless thing to do. Just let his kids play in the street. It's like no one was, it was all during like most lockdowns. I mean, the streets were beautifully, blissfully empty. And I was thinking to myself, how, what's wrong with me judging this? This is gorgeous. There are kids playing in the street. Like this is this is what I want my street to be like yeah. at all points. I I experienced the same thing um, with the lockdowns. Fascinatingly, the roads became places of play, and you know I've lived on the same street for four or five years now. Um, when the lockdowns happened, I met all my neighbors. I've never been so social with people as I have been. When we all got stuck at home and we all kind of came out on our porches to look around and look for human connection. And what happened is we had all these kids on the street that I had no idea existed. And they set up games on their road. And we had like kids from my side of the street, but also kids from the opposite side of the street. And it was some strange like connection where they met in the middle and they had their balls and frisbees and they had sticks and they were playing games. And I just remember looking around going like, this is 
what life could be. Like, we could just be hanging out, like, not worrying about our kids getting burned down by a car. Like, they can play in the road without anyone yelling at them and telling them to scram. Like, it was, it was truly beautiful. And it was so sad to think, like, what we have lost fundamentally. Um, yeah, it's in, funny. Yeah. When, when I watch these films like 12 Monkeys that look into a future where god forbid our cities should be overgrown and look there's a giraffe on the highway overpass and i go like fuck yeah a giraffe <laughs> like I, <laughs> i'm so happy i see plants growing out of stu horrible looking tower blocks this is great <laughs> we're gonna read in the news soon that you're gonna be like breaking the animals out of the zoo like this is what i want the city to be <laughs> yeah I mean, it, it's straight. I, I crave, I crave for some sort of humanity. I was just a couple of days ago, I took my daughter to this um, uh, birthday party, and uh, in this area of London called Vauxhall, and and uh, and the buildings looked like, and the whole urban planning there looked like it had been created by a five year old in Minecraft. You know, it was horrific. And, I, and I quite enjoy the whimsy of five-year-old Minecraft. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, you do you, yeah, but like, I'm here for the Minecraft city designed by five-year-olds. Uh, you would have not enjoyed that one. Okay, fine. <laughs> okay, uh, uh, but um, but but the I was almost run over by someone who was rushing into one of those uh, like supermarket mega supermarkets, American-style ones. I didn't even know they exist here. You know, rushing in there to buy a shit. And then, like, almost just ran me and my daughter over, and I just pulled her. I pulled her out of the way. It was like, wow, this guy's really in a hurry to do his shopping, you know, and his SUV and stuff. And then that was the only human contact I had while walking around this area. It was all just grayness and concrete and bullshit. And the next park was like a ten-minute walk away. You're like, how? How do we arrive at this? And these buildings are like, none of them are older than twenty years. Like, this has all been done recently. Yeah. Why? I I feel like, I feel like the lockdown stuff is really interesting too, right? Like, because one of the things that was really notable, especially in North America, I'm sure it was similar in Australia and, you know, obviously there's a bit more public space in, in parts of Europe um, and, and, you know, communities are a bit more walkable generally. Um, But here, you know, we had a lot of kind of central streets and things like that, that got shut down, like closed off to cars and opened up to pedestrians during the pandemic, during the early, well, the early part of the pandemic, you know, when we had the lockdowns and things like that, because people wanted to, or people needed to be able to get out, to walk around, to get some fresh air and to be able to social distance. Right. Um, and then after that kind of initial lockdown period that turned into street dining and like other things that were happening in the street. So that kind of space was being used in a different way. And I think that it kind of showed a lot of people who never really thought about it before, how the streets and how that space can work in a very different way. And instead of just being, you know, the exclusive right of way of cars can actually be a space where people come together, have some community, have community interaction, things like that. But then, you know, as soon as we started to get this pressure to go back to normal, quote unquote, you know, the desire to stop paying so much attention to the pandemic, we have the vaccines now, um, you know, go back to work, all these sorts of things. There was intense pressure immediately to close those spaces to pedestrians again and to reopen them to cars, right? You know, this kind of exceptional moment is over. So stop this kind of 
you know, new thing that we've done in this moment and give it back to the way it was before, right? We need to go back to normal. Um, and, you know, I, I think in some ways it's disappointing that um, that wasn't built on as much as it could have been. But I think it also created a kind of space and, and a kind of recognition among people to build on in the future to try to, you know, create more of those spaces because people see how their cities and their communities can work differently in a way that was much more difficult to imagine before that moment. I saw a tweet the other day from someone who showed a Formula One car with like neon lights under it or whatever, doing like the loop to loops or whatever the hell, like doing some like figure eights uh, and showing off in front of a crowd. And the sort of video game uh, nerd in me went like, you know, I'm all for it. I'm all for Formula One going full wipeout. You know, I want to have those <laughs> super futuristic sort of races. And I was thinking about your book at that point. And I was thinking, you know, and I was thinking about horse races, you know, um, because, you know, we no longer have horses in the streets, but we have horse races. I can't stand horse races. I think they're unethical and they're crap. But car races, I'm all for it. But can we also remove the cars from the streets as we did with the horses? And then everyone can get excited about this bullshit car racing thing, right? <laughs> It'll be fantastic. the horses with the cars. Yes. Like some kind of step there. I like it. And you put neon lights on them and it's going to be awesome. I don't know. I'm totally down for that. You know, I'm, I have no problem. With car racing, you know, take your, yeah, you know, you, you want to have your like old car, drive it around, take it to the track, you know, no problem. Like enjoy it, have fun, do your thing. But yeah, not yeah. on the streets. <laughs> Don't you think that's a good idea? I, I would vote for you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Let's just build racetracks, like lots of racetracks for well, these not lots, people. You know, <laughs> let's not go too far. They shut down my city for these like you know, parts of the city for some NASCAR-esque thing. And it's like the worst. Every time I get irate, it is, it's a whole thing. Oh, I won't go into it. But like, I'm very, you know, I'm happy to just, let's get cars the hell out of here. Um, so my segue is, you know, I'm going to bring it back. Uh, Paris, have you done any research into the history of the supermarket? I wouldn't say I've done a lot of research into it. I've read a bit about it. Um, you know, certainly there is an interesting history there, you know, in, in North America, and I'm sure it's similar in other places too, the kind of destruction of the kind of old downtown, the main street, you know, that the city was centered around. And instead you have the kind of the center of commerce moved out toward the fringes, toward the suburbs, into these big, you know, supermarkets that in the early, you know, days when they are being talked about, when they are being imagined, it's in a very kind of, I wouldn't go so far as to say utopian, but they were seen in a way that um, they are not seen today for sure as being, you know, this public space where you can get away from the cars. You can, you know, have these meetings with with the people that, you know, you can see them in this space that is kind of for the community. And there's all this commerce that's around it. But then, of course, when the mall itself is built, when, you know, they 
become built in many more cities, um, you know, the more positive sides of that are not there because this is inherently a commercial space. It's a space where people are going to shop, um, not where they want you to just linger or for, you know, teenagers to hang out or anything like that. They want you to come spend your money and then, you know, kind of get out the door. Um, and so especially in the periods when, you know, there's a lot of kind of suburban expansion. There's a big push to the suburbs. Malls are incredibly popular. There's a lot of malls being built out. But now, of course, in recent years, as people are probably familiar, there's a lot of stories about how malls are really kind of falling into decay as that kind of vision for how we're going to live is really eroding. And I feel like especially recently, there's much more of a focus of going kind of back to the city, back to the downtown. You're gentrifying the downtown. Certainly, there are some kind of shopping centers and malls um, that, that come up around that. But it's, it's you know, a kind of a different way of living again. It's really interesting to think about the supermarket space in tandem with this history of the automobile that you've described in terms of this kind of painting of a more utopian, efficient future for us and then finding that actually these technologies and these social strategies have actually um, begun to erode community. And looking back at the history of the supermarket, you find that basically communities used to be quite locally focused. They were very walkable. You had your, uh, you know, like not for everyone, but there was a much smaller concentration of community where there was a large amount of accessibility. You had your like your fruit seller and your butcher and your, you know, you had the dairy person coming by. Um, so we had these kind of communities that were essentially self-functioning. Um, you, there was this incentive for everybody in the community to make sure that there was a level of self-sustainment. Um, and that, did largely come from the fact, you know, like pre-automobile where you couldn't travel large distances for the things that you needed served by force. Like communities had to plan for themselves. They had to be centralized in ways that were really important. And that did actually bond the community together. You knew your neighbors because they sold you the things you needed to get by and you helped each other and you had to, or, you know, winter might be really hot or summer might be really hot. It sounds like a really primitive time. Oh yes. <laughs> terrible. <laughs> and yeah, so like I've, I find this kind of history of the automobile and this history of the supermarket to be very kind of, um, you know, adjacent to each other in terms of the way that um, supermarkets did begin to push out these more local sellers. Supermarkets, while, you know, they were portrayed as this kind of evolution of, you know, social commerce, what happened was they they pinned mom and pop and your neighbors as their competition. They, you know, their buying power meant that they could undercut um, the price of what was being sold. And they began to essentially eradicate these 
local self-sustaining community organizations that had been formed um, because of this. So like we, what we have and what we see in this evolution of society, um, you know, I use what evolution very tentatively here, but we have these, um, these places of commerce that are intentionally undermining the local structures of local commerce and community self-sustaining strategies. And then you have the automobile pushing things out and making communities not have to be so centralized, so walkable, so accessible. Things now, yeah, much farther out. And then, you know, you're forced into this kind of um, requirement of, having this automobile to get there because everything's suddenly so far away that you, you just can't make it anymore it's like road to nowhere actually the thing that paris uh, gets into and it's so so interesting and i'd never thought of it that way is at the beginning when only the rich had the car um they would actually trap use it to travel to their estates way outside the cities um and and then when that became a bit of a pain in the ass for them they thought nah, maybe we should own the cities <laughs> And it's the poor, now that they can afford the cars, they should fuck off to the suburbs. And so the construction of the suburbs then started emerging out of that. Let's remove them. Let's make these cities, the, the, these, these, these places of hyper-commercial focus, let, let's centralize it around us and let's tell them to go away and consume at the malls outside. It's, it's, and I think, would you say that this was mostly driven by sort of capitalism at large? Or, or was was the automobile industry and slash the sort of oil and the oil sort of petrol industry was that really the driving f force behind this urban design change? Yeah, I, I think it's interesting, right? To pick up on on both of your points there um, is that really a lot of these things are driven by trying to like further capitalize our lives, right? To turn more of the things that we do into transactions that can be you know, better used to grow the system, right? And this is just kind of inherent to capitalism. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of how it works. Um, even if, you know, you don't have particular interests who are like, you know, this is how the system works. This is what we need to do next. It's just kind of built in like, okay, we need to start transforming social and economic relations in this way because this is the way that we have growth. We make more profit, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and so like, you know, the, the supermarket is, is fascinating fascinating because you go from having these like mom and pop stores i feel like you know when i'm when i'm in paris for example like it's very notable how many kind of small shops are around as you walk around the city um but then you know if you go to like a north american city um especially if you're not going to like new york or something like that you know really what's what's available is supermarkets and all of the stores have to have like specific branding right there is an incentive mm -hmm. toward you know chains and things like that because as you're driving by in your car you're not going to see like you know the small shop or whatever you're going to see the big logo of the arby's or you know whatever other chain you might be driving by right and so there's a real incentive to turn into these kind of large commercialized chains in that way and so i would say to go to your question you know it's really if you think about this transformation that happens you know 
there are many different um, things that are driving it. If you're thinking about the build out of the suburbs, the encouragement to buy automobiles, a lot of that is kind of um, caught up in encouraging more economic activity, right? If you have a city where, you know, people have a small apartment or, you know, people even own a condo or something like that, and then they take public transit, like there's less kind of commercial transactions that are happening there. Whereas if you push people out to the suburbs, they need to have larger homes. They need to buy more things to fill those homes. They need to own their automobile. They need to pay for insurance and gas and maintenance and who knows what else to go along with it. Like it's a, it's a way of life that involves many more transactions that involve, you know, that is very beneficial to capitalism and the system that we've built up. And there's a discouragement to then kind of change that, take that away, to have a simpler way of life, we might say, um, that involves less of that. Um, and that Because that would just built- make us evil, woke communists. <laughs> exactly. Uh, tofu eating uh, wokeistas or however they, they term it over your way. Oh, <laughs> yes. Yes. The Queen's English calls it woke karate, actually. Right. Sorry. Uh, Sorry. Yes. I got that wrong. <laughs> but yeah, you know, so it's, it's fascinating to watch that transformation. And like certainly in the United States as well, um, you know, obviously this is driven by particular capitalist forces who want to benefit from this, but there's also a racial element to it where, you know, you're taking the white people out of the city, putting them into the suburbs, separating them from the kind of inner cities of black people that are left to really decay for a few decades. Right. Um, and a lot of their, well, at least are- white people are getting segregated for a change. Yeah, yeah, I guess. But they're also getting the benefits of it, right? And and I feel like it's also really interesting because um, Chantel, you were talking about like you know during the lockdown period how you went out and like you were meeting your neighbors and all these sorts of things, right? And I think it's really fascinating to think back to the early kind of promotion as the suburb, as though like you know you're going out of the city, you're going to be in these idyllic communities where you're going to know all of your neighbors and and all these sorts of things. And I feel like that kind of vision of the suburb if it was ever really real in the way it was presented, has really eroded in the past um, couple of decades. And I feel like now suburban life in particular is associated a lot with kind of disconnection, with a lack of community, with loneliness even, um, because Mm -hmm. those kind of connections do not exist in the way that maybe they used to with suburbs. Obviously, I wasn't around in the 50s or 60s to know for sure. Um, (laughs) But yeah, there there does seem to be a particular loss there. And I think that's linked up in it to some degree in the way that those communities are built and shaped. But I think for other reasons, I think it's just linked up to capitalism in general and how it kind of thrives on breaking those bonds of community and then forcing us to replace those with transactions and things that we buy um, in the, the economy, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a huge amount of money and uh, fundamentally propaganda goes into facilitating these kinds of social narratives of how we're living our lives. So, um, you know, I'm going to go back to the supermarket for a second. Um, And some of the research that I've done, uh, there was this really interesting push when these supermarkets came out as, you know, they'd kind of become these commercial beasts. And they found that... um, you know, women who were traditionally the homemakers and who made the food were not buying the the products on the shelves, these kind of mass-produced products. They were seen as somewhat inferior. 
um, you know, fresh food. Fresh Understandably food so, you know. And yeah, so what they did was there was a concentrated media campaign to essentially gaslight women and societies into genuinely believing that fresh food was actually inferior and these canned alternatives on the shelves that did not look like food. You know, this is these were the days of spam. Like processed food was keeping it alive in a can. <laughs> like for not spoiling, that that was rough back then. So um they, you know, they had these narratives of, oh well, these are packed full of nutrients that you wouldn't get otherwise, et cetera, et cetera. And there was this really strong push to accuse uh, women in particular of actually not doing right by their families if they did not purchase these products. It was actually, you know, irresponsible to continue to make fresh food for your family when these wonderful nutritious alternatives now existed for you to buy your family. And yeah, we find that where commerciality exists, um, where people need people to buy products to swell their wealth, and where people have the money behind them to be shaping these narratives, you do find these large, like quite intense propaganda um, campaigns targeted at entire societies to shift the mindsets and the um, even the way we interpret our realities and the facts that we're given around, you know, what truth is and what fiction is. So, um, so how do we, how, so how do we, Paris and Chantal, profit from this as much as possible? Because that's what the show is all about. How do we? <laughs> <laughs> take advantage of this beautiful capitalist system and uh, and enrich ourselves. Uh, no, but uh, it's really, to me, what's fascinating is, so Paris is a great mind in dissecting, pointing fingers at, um, drawing historical, cultural, societal parallels, uh, that go back, you know. It's a, to me, it's a history book. I mean, it's a, what you wrote. It's a, it's a look as much into the past as it is a look into the future. It's it's directional in that sense. Um, <laughs> but it is it is a history book. Um, but as we say, you know, the history is history books are written by by the winners, by the victors. Um, we are all writers here. We're all narrative thinkers in this space. Um, you've written, you've described a road to nowhere, but could you, I would, I would, I would so want to read Paris's utopian alternative to this. Like I want to read the road to, to, to somewhere, actually. Is that something that you are sometimes thinking about doing? Uh I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I I feel like I feel like I'm a far better critic than like an imaginative. Like you know, I, I'm far better at criticizing what is and and you know the problems with it and what it might bring than imagining the alternative. Even though I do that a bit as well. Um, like like I find it fascinating to pick up on the advertising piece for a second, right? Like you know, in the same way that they're selling food to 
to mothers and to families and to you know whole societies right and and different ways of thinking about food and buying food and and what it's going to mean for us right um don't cook a a meal for your family buy these tv dinners and sit in front of the tv and and consume that and that'll be your family time right um the automobile was was all tied up in that too right the there was a massive advertising campaign there was a lot of coordination between newspapers which were the major media at the time you know when they were rolling out and the auto companies who were paying a lot of money for advertising in that kind of media um and that's why we see so many newspapers, even as they've really shrunk in recent years, still often have car sections or drive sections or what have you. That's because of all the money that car companies spend and dealers spend to advertise their cars in this kind of media. And so it really sells a vision of society that is oriented around the automobile to the public. And I find it so fascinating. You know, occasionally occasionally you'll see these articles or, or these arguments that, you know, okay, yeah, there's all this this advertising out there, but it doesn't really affect, you know, people's decisions or how people think or what have you. And it's like, why do you think these companies spend billions of dollars a year to like feed these narratives to us? Because it has absolutely no impact on how we think and like you know how mm-hmm. how we buy and and whatnot um so that's fascinating to me and so then like you know if we think about the future and what the future looks like you know these advertisers these companies are really shaping the future for us and have billions of dollars to help do it right and it's a it's a future that really benefits them um and so sometimes i feel like even though i can criticize these things even though i can imagine alternatives maybe i'm still like somewhat limited in the alternative or in in like the utopian future that i can actually imagine because you know just the thinking is so constrained by the reality of today by the advertising and the media that we consume and, and all these sorts of things, right? Like in the book, I certainly do talk about potential alternatives to what we have. You know, I say that we need to invest much more in cycling infrastructure, in ensuring our communities are, are more walkable and you can reach the things that you want to access, um, you know, close to where you live, that we need much greater investment in public transit so that there's a real alternative for people so that they don't have to drive in order to get around. And we need a massive investment in like intercity bus services, intercity rail services, high speed rail, even in the corridors where that makes sense. Um, but it's like, am I in, in saying that, is that still too kind of limited, right? Should, should I be thinking bigger than, than that? Is that like, some people told me like, you're reinvesting in the automobile, <laughs> right? Like some people told me like, you know, that's, that's you're you're presenting a really kind of social democratic vision. Like where's your real like socialist or communist vision for how this society really looks different. And I'm like, okay, I'm sorry. I'm trying like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> well, this is where Chantal comes in. Now give us your radical future vision how do we fix everything oh what's the first oh step God. flying cars autonomous yeah. pods yeah. <laughs> <laughs> dropping shit out of them <laughs> um, <laughs> we don't go there anymore um no yeah okay so this this is as the idealist um you know this is something i've actually thought a lot about and it is interesting that yag brought you on because i I like to do the thing where I don't know really anything about our guests when they come on. We, I'm the foil, you know. Um, so I've been very, very interested in specifically community and sustainable communities. 
for many years now. And the car has actually been, you know, one of my my real pet peeves about our society. I think we can trace so much of where we truly went deeply, horrifically astray in societies that were full of human connection when we brought the automobile inside because of reasons that we have discussed. Um, One I'll touch on that, you know, I I was thinking about when um, you guys were talking, I didn't want to interrupt, but uh, in terms of not knowing our neighbors, there is this, this interesting thing that happens where we'll drive down our street and we'll pull into our driveways, like either into our closed garages or right up to our doors, and we'll walk straight in. You have no opportunity to meet your neighbors unless their walk is or, you know, they like to garden in the front yard, and you do too. It's like there are so many missed opportunities that we simply, like, are not given because of these weird ways in which we're able to just never see each other because we're contained in walls all the time. Um, anyway, so yeah, I think that that and the lack of um, really self-sustaining communities and self-organized communities as well is something that has deeply damaged our, not just our communities, but our relations with each other as human beings. Um, again, as we've touched on, this lack of needing to rely and collaborate with our neighbors um, prevents us from getting to know community, from uh, forging really important social bonds. We don't feel the sense of belonging that we would ordinarily feel in a close-knit society because we don't really have a place uh, amongst you know our fellow people we might have jobs that we kind of do because it keeps us alive but like not that many of us can say like we feel like we we matter to the world in some way whereas in past times you know like the fact that you can successfully grow apples and spinach in your garden like and that's something you're really good at doing and when the neighborhood needs spinach like you're the one they come to that like you know it almost sounds trivial but it it's deeply not trivial like when you feel like you have a place and you have a purpose and people need you for things that it gives this like incredible sense of human connection that like I genuinely believe we are evolutionary evolutionarily um evolved to seek we are like you know fundamentally pack animals humans survive by bonding together it is absolutely in our DNA to seek each other out to glom together and to work together to keep ourselves alive we miss so much of that um so yeah I absolutely think that um yeah let's let's reclaim our cities I'm not sure that we need so many roads at all like why do we need to be able to pull up in front of every single thing we need to access like why I I have a really interesting perspective I think of um you know the U.S. I am married to an American and Ohioan and I grew up in Australia and you know I was quite young we met when I was 15 so I went there when I was 16 for the first time and um 
something I'll never forget happened. And that was we went to a restaurant. It was, you know, it was winter. It was decently cold, but it wasn't, you know, like irrepressibly cold. And we decided we would go get dessert somewhere else. And it was about a two block walk. And so I'm like, okay. And they kind of pointed in the direction. And so we're leaving the restaurant and I begin walking in the direction of the dessert place. And the other five people I was with all started getting in the car. And I was so confused because I was, I said to them, I was like, I thought you said it was a two block. Like I thought it's two blocks that way. And they're like, yeah. And they were so confused looking at me. And I was so confused looking at them because it just, it simply didn't occur to them, you know, and it, it's so higher. It's not known for its, like, its accessibility in terms of travel. But that, that is what you do in so many parts of the US is you simply drive to where you're going. It, it is the method of travel by default. It's funny, actually. Like, it was it was an Australian film, actually, that made me aware of that absurdity the first time. It was uh, The Gods Have Gone Crazy. Have you seen that film? No. It's from like decades ago. And it starts out with this like person in this very dramatic opening scene coming out of her house. And she has this letter in her hand. And it's, she's, I think it was a she, I mean, it's ages ago now. And then so, you know, licks the stamp on it and gets gets in the car, starts to drive the camera, the crane pulls up dramatically and the car just drives half a block down the road, stops. <laughs> she comes out, puts the thing in the letter and then reverses. <laughs> it goes back in the house. God, that's, that's sometimes it. what it feels like. Yeah. That, yeah. that is the that is like the car culture though right like that that's kind of the expectation like you don't you're the car is so normalized the notion of getting everywhere in a car is just so regular to people that you don't even consider walking short distances because it that's just not how you get around right you get around yeah, in the car <laughs> But, yeah, but the, exactly. But, it's just by default. It's instinct. But the thing that the I car. did appreciate, <laughs> I did appreciate about the car when I was in LA was that at least for 45 minutes or whatever it took me to drive those two blocks, uh, I could think about stuff, right? I mean, we had time to think, which was which was kind of cool. Like that was, a, that was a benefit. I could listen to something on the radio. I could listen to a podcast, probably. I mean, I, I don't drive now because I can't stand driving. I mean, I, I do occasionally when I really have to on weekends, whatever. Um, and there's a, there's the 15th train strike of the month. Um, but I, I can't stand it. Uh, but but uh, but that the, the thing that is interesting to me is that at least we had some thought bubbles there in the car. Um, we've uh, and then we have highways. And we talked about supermarkets. Wait, wait, wait. I need, I need to yes. stop you there yes. because don't you have the thought bubbles when you're walking too? Oh, uh, sure, sure, sure. No, the reason I was, I was uh, being stupid about it because I've heard that 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 so often when people go like, yeah, but at least I have time to listen to a podcast and stuff. I completely agree. I do that when I walk. I, that's what yeah, I have to do. I'm like, this is what the Walkman was for. Bring back the Walkman. Multitask, okay? Walking, <laughs> listening. What am I, an animal? No, but uh, no, but the the idea of the superhighway, uh, the information superhighway, uh, as they call it, um, and that's the segue I'm doing this one, um, is interesting to me because uh, IBM, which is a 
you know, obviously one of the big data, digital companies, whatever, was instrumental in uh, during the Holocaust in uh, sort of lending their sort of punch card technology to uh, organizing the transport of people and the organization and segregation, etc., uh, to the concentration camps, etc. So big data, big money, and also dehumanization have been working together since the very beginning because uh, mm-hmm. those people are ahead of their time, always. <laughs> so we are... Kind of. <laughs> so now we are here and we're talking about the, the lack of a town square and a community around us uh, in which we can gather and communicate. But of course, we've got you know, people that we shall not mention on the show anymore, calling, you know, uh, spaces in which thought has been reduced to snippets um, that travel very, very rapidly with no context. And they're calling that space the world's town square. Is that the word? Is that the is that the new term? Something that's, like that. Uh, like yeah, that. That's, that's the new catchphrase. That's it. So we no longer get to communicate with our neighbors because that's no longer fashionable. The self-driving car will take you straight to the supermarket and the information superhighway will make sure that your only sense of community is the one in which you pay to have an identity. Sure. Like, you know, just even think more broadly about the incentives of these companies. Right. And we saw it very clearly during, you know, the first year or two of the pandemic where all of their profits and revenues went through the roof because we were spending more time looking at our screens. The whole goal is to ensure that as many of our interactions with society and other people as possible happen through some technology, some screen, something like that. Right. Um, you know, we don't even need to talk about Twitter. Um, we can go back to Facebook and even earlier social media. Um, like in particular, there is the argument, especially with Facebook, that this is how you're going to keep in touch with people. This is how you're going to communicate with people um, as, you know, the the bonds of community are eroding out into the world because in part of how we've built community because of the economic system that we have and how that, you know, is kind of designed to break those bonds so that you can turn it into transactions. Um, now, how you're going to talk to people is through our service where we can serve you ads and make money based on engagement and shape your interactions with people in a way that is going to be beneficial to our kind of business model and bottom line. Um, this is how we talk to one another now. This is how um, we communicate. And then if you think more broadly, it's an argument I make in the book as well, kind of pulling from some work that Lawrence Smiley did, an article that she wrote back in 2015 about the shut-in economy. Like Especially in the pandemic, we see this um, become very clear where a lot of people, professional workers in particular, are at home, are getting a lot of things delivered because, you know, the narrative is, you know, don't go outside, don't risk spreading COVID or getting COVID from someone else. But then you also have this whole, you know, kind of group of workers whose whole job is to serve those people who are at home, who are using the delivery services and, and whatnot, you know, the fast food workers, the delivery workers, the grocery workers, all these sorts of people um, are still out in the world, are still taking that risk for for your safety so to speak and for a little like brief period of time they're kind of heroes or or essential workers or whatever you want to call them but then very quickly you know once that kind of moment of um exception ends right when there's the push to go back to normal you know they get degraded once again and you know the expectation that they should get a couple more dollars an hour um for their work or something is like 
just unimaginable. Like, how dare they ex- expect that, right? And and so that it's just fascinating then to see how these technologies are often presented to us and promoted to us as empowering, as you know, liberating, as the means through which we achieve like freedom and all these things. Going back to you know, certainly narratives in the 90s about the internet, the kind of libertarian narratives, but even further back than that, you know, the the empowerment of technology that comes out of ideas around the counterculture and things like that. Um, and, and really, I see those sorts of things as really good PR and marketing for technologies and companies that are benefiting off of further eroding our relationships, further eroding society so that they can find new ways to profit off of us and use these technologies in the means of doing that. You know, I had this moment at PAX East, this big game convention in Boston uh, in April um, where I was promoting my game, The Last Worker there, which is all about automation and being replaced by by robots and ultimately being the last human left in this fulfillment center in this case and of the story in the game uh but in order to sort of help promote my game i had a robot with me on the show floor it was a little self-driving robot that would follow me around everywhere but it followed me it would be behind me and it was like my little doggy and uh except my dog actually leads me but no, never mind but anyway but it was uh, it was following me around and and you can and you could and then people would stop me. It was this cute little round thing on wheels, and it was, it was super smart. I didn't have to do anything. I didn't have uh, it. Just recognized my body, and then it just followed me around through the crowd. And I would get stopped every few seconds. Oh my god, look a robot! And the people, you know, parents would be there with their kids, and then and then the little robot stopped, and I'd open the lid, and I'd like pull out a sticker and like a you know a little brochure about the game and stuff. <laughs> And and people would stop me and say, "What is this?" I'm like, it's a robot. I'm like, what do you mean? It's a cobot. You don't have one of them. Uh, it's they're perfectly normal. Like we, everyone has this now. And and it was interesting because that to me was an example of these. And this one is this is one called Gita that that is made by Piaggio. I don't know if you. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd love to introduce you to them, actually, because it might be fun to actually have a conversation with you on your show, which is kind of positive because the, the, the person <laughs> <laughs> because the person behind uh, the Gita, uh, Greg Lynn, is an architect and a fantastic architect. He worked with Piaggio, you know, the Vespa, the scooter company, on sort of making these robots that are ultimately there to serve, to, to, in, to actually encourage walking in your community. Uh, it's it's a little helper that will carry your stuff for you. So so elderly people, for instance, can walk around and have this robot follow them around with all their shit while they sort of you know have chats with their neighbors and whatever. And I was like, that's cool. Like that's it was a conversation starter and it helped promote the message of my game and all this kind of stuff in a really fun way. But there can be good tech, right? Absolutely, I, I think so. Like you know. I, I think it's often assumed because of the title of the show that I'm inherently like anti-technology, right? That I think that all technology is bad and, you know, in no way can new technology like uh, improve society or anything like that. Obviously, that's not true. Um, <laughs> we, there's there's plenty of ways that technology has improved things. Technology has allowed us to connect and, and have this chat right now in three, you know, very different parts of the world. For example, technology, um, you know, is what made it easy for us or, or you know, much quicker for us to um, produce vaccines for COVID in, a, in kind of a record amount of time. And then, of course, capitalism got in the way and made it difficult to get those vaccines out to people. Um, and so I would say that I don't think that technology is inherently bad. 
I would say that in some ways, technology is used by capitalism in a way that is bad when it could have been used in a, you know, a much more kind of socially beneficial way. But then I would also note, and I feel like this is a part that a lot of people miss sometimes, I think that technological development also gets shaped by capitalism, right? Also gets shaped by the economic mm-hmm. relations that we're in. Um, and so some technologies that could be socially useful won't get the resources and investment so they they don't develop, um, you know, quickly enough or, or you know, uh, they're not realized at all. Whereas technologies that are beneficial to capital, beneficial to the desire to control people, to get money out of people, those will get the resources and investment and those will, you know, kind of proliferate in society. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that we can see technology in multiple different ways. I don't think technology is inherently bad, but I think that right now, how we have set up the kind of pipeline of technological development and innovation, you know, how the tech industry, whether it's in Silicon Valley or that model that has kind of expanded globally is set up, um, really gives us negative outcomes that are not beneficial to much of the public, um, but gives these companies more power and control, gives even, you know, aspects of the state um, more power and control over us, you know, the the ability to surveil much of what we do. Um, and then on top of that, you know, just doesn't bring the benefits that we would expect. Technology is neutral in its way, but it is um, exploited for purposes of power and um, power comes in different forms. It's, you know, power can be territoriality and seizing that. Power can be in being able to sculpt social narratives, societal narratives, as we've spoken about. Um, and so, you know, when we have so many resources concentrated in the hands of people who are heavily self-interested and who maintain power by essentially reinvesting in technologies that do keep them in control of that power in a world in which everyone is vying for their own version of power. Um, We do absolutely get these um, pushes of investing in technologies that can um, obtain these, but also... Um, sculpting these more neutral technologies into these strange versions of like, you know, it's um, bizarre tech. And, you know, we've got Superman and bizarre Superman and we've got this weird bizarre tech. I was, when you were talking, I was thinking about something I experienced lately. So um, I work in the AI space. I develop linguistic AI technology. And uh, I just, I started making it because I always wanted basically the games that I played to be more intelligent. And I really wanted them to talk back to me. I grew up on, you know, text adventures and I, I just, I would play with the chatbots when I was a kid. And I just, I really wanted them to know who I was and to love me. So I grew up and I was like, I'm going to make that. Um, so yeah, I've been working on it. It's been going very well. And um, I happened to meet the CEO of a public company, so a fairly well-resourced company. And we were at a bar and I was quite drunk. And I was waxing poetic about this amazing technology I had developed for my game. And he kind of looks at me and he's like, I want to buy you a tech. 
And I, I look at him and I'm like, ah, sure you do, you drunk old man. Uh, we're at a bar, you know, I'm not taking this very seriously. Um, but, you know, next week comes by and I think we're, we're hanging out for a catch up. But he brings the founder of the company and we have chats and we kind of enter into this weird like merger and acquisitions conversation. Um, and that, you know, takes us through to a meeting in which we're having these formal discussions about, you know, what they might, you know, be interested in around the tech and, you know, money discussions, etc. And so I thought I made this really cool tech that would make games really fun and cool and interesting and kind of push them forward. But during that conversation they brought up the fact that this technology that i had made would actually be able to automate thousands of lines of dynamic npc dialogue which it absolutely can and it can do it in a really really great way you can you know program personalities at the click of a button and they'll be consistent and their language will be very unique um, but yeah, so essentially they were kind of coming from a, wow, we can save hundreds of thousands of dollars every year by firing our writing team and replacing them with this cool new technology. And I just went like, holy shit, like what just happened? Like I did like, I didn't even, it did not occur to me. That this could ever potentially be a thing. I made it, but I never anticipated it might be used for evil. That was just not how I designed it. And it was such a jarring moment for me because I thought about all the times in history that there was someone who was just really nerding out about something that they were just loving and having fun with and passionate about. And they made a really cool thing that no one had done before. And then people with a lot of money came in and said, hey, that's cool. I'll buy it. And they went, wow, you're going to like let me pay my bills and keep my lights on like for making this cool tech? Sure, I have it. It's an obvious ending. The company takes it and destroys the world with it. Or, you know, they, they consolidate power. They do horrible things. Or they destroy plenty of people's lives. And it's like, that wasn't the intention, but either power and money made that technology into that version of that technology rather than you know what it was intended for or that kind of like joyous version of what that technology could be and now it, it's captured it's in the hands of people using it for nefarious means i've, I've always was fast I've always been fascinated with us sort of narrative storyteller historical analytic analytical types who um publish books and sort of share their ideas etc that it, I, any idea in the wrong hands can be used for evil and to do harm to others because ideas are powerful. You know, stories drive everything, um, not cars. Um, yes, the thing that drove the car is a bunch of bullshit stories and lies, as, we, as we've established earlier in this chat. But it's like uh, you take a look at Paul Verhoeven's films, as dumb as you know they were uh, on the surface level, whether it was Robocop or Starship Troopers or whatever. I mean, he essentially invented Fox News. You know, 
I mean, he was dreaming up this absurdist future America in which everyone like listens to idiotic stuff on TV and fascists and uniforms are on TV telling you to do evil and stuff. And <laughs> I mean, like that's ever going to happen. Right. And then it's happening. And, uh, and I personally have this problem now. I'm thinking shit like because I, I, my mind always spins into sci-fi, very often into sci-fi st- stories and dystopias and and horror and other other stuff. And I'm thinking, is it best to perhaps not dream up these sort of horrorscapes because someone will actually take them, you know, at face value and copy them as if they were a valuable IP? You know, oh, evil is a good IP. That's people know that. Let's do that. Yeah, it's. I certainly don't know the answer. <laughs> what's the What's the best way to Tell approach us, it? Paris, please. Yeah. <laughs> <We're begging. laughs> but you know, like if you if you look at what often inspires a lot of these tech people, it's science fiction stories, right? That they read when they were younger, when they were kids or teenagers or mm-hmm. or what have you, and they strip away kind of the lessons of that story maybe we might say you know like for example mark zuckerberg um being really into the metaverse and his inspirations for that are neil stevenson snow crash and ready player one um and he kind of separates the metaverse the virtual world that exists there from the dystopian reality that those stories are set in um and, and, you know certainly we could say that we're probably headed toward a pretty dystopian situation right now if we're not already in one um but you know it's this it's this real interest in in the tech in what is being proposed or offered by the tech in these stories and completely ignoring what the impacts of those technologies are even within the stories as they're being told, right? Um, the impact of the metaverse, uh, for example, on on these societies, or the reason that the metaverse emerges, or, or the connections between that, right? Everyone is entering into these kind of highly commercialized virtual spaces because the real world is has been made so absolutely terrible by capitalism by inequality and things like that right but that gets ignored because the story seems cool the story looks good you know jeff bezos the same way he loves star trek he's really into star trek and that's one of the things that kind of drives his desire to colonize space and and to go to space and all these sorts of things right and a lot of people would say well you know and certainly there's a there's a debate on this but a lot of people would say that star trek is kind of like you know leans left you know there's no kind of money uh especially in in certain series like um objects can just be replicated of course mm-hmm. um so you don't need to worry about the economy buying things all these all these sorts of you know um things that are very present in our society but jeff bezos's vision of colonizing the stars um is to create these big space colonies to mine asteroids like it's a very kind of capitalist vision of how we go into space rather than thinking you know how do we think about space in a way that is beneficial to everyone rather than just this kind of capitalist vision for how it should work um and that's not to say that you know there can't be stories that look critically at at 
you know, these futures that do so through a science fictional lens. You know, one that always comes to mind for me um, is uh, Sleep Dealer, 2008 Mexican science fiction film um, that really looks at, uh, you know, there are all these people in Mexico. The border has been like completely shut down. So instead of the migrant labor that we have right now, um, you know, Mexican, the, the Mexican people who do this work go into these factories and control these robots remotely from across the border. Um, and like increasingly, it looks like we're headed, you know, closer and closer to that kind of world, right? Um, in, in a very kind of dystopian and, and worrying way. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that that gives any kind of answer to anything. Um, but I do do think it's interesting how, you know, even if these stories do have a critical lens, that doesn't stop these people who have positions of power from just finding what they want into them and then using them to justify you know, whatever terrible idea it is that they have for where we should go next. I think maybe they've never, because I was talking about mentioned a city, you know, designed by a five-year-old in Minecraft. It's, and it really is actually an insult to children. But, uh, but what is extraordinary about these, these men, because most of them really are men, uh, that still behave like children, uh, like like big sort of Hulkin boys, um, like Palmer Lucky, who the creator of uh, Oculus, uh, who actually now designs border control robots. He went from, you know, bringing video games and VR fun to everyone to having, you know, white supremacist leanings. But he didn't really mean that when he was flashing those symbols and stuff because he was just trolling, you see. And then funding and then co-funding the Pizzagate sort of shit posters online. Cause, but he also didn't mean that either. He was just spending a few $10,000 for fun because, you know, when you have so much money, you just whatever, right? <laughs> and then close your eyes and throw it. Just whatever. Okay, see, see what sticks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and yesterday he tweeted this. The other day he tweeted this um, picture of a VR headset with built-in explosives because he likes to play some role-playing game in which you have permadeath. And wouldn't it be cool if you could play this in VR? And and when you die in the game, it would blow up your head in real life. And I was like. Palmer, that's a fantastic fucking idea. <laughs> Please play that with all of your mates, right? Yeah, <laughs> tomorrow. And to, until everyone, every last one of them, you know, turn it into a real world Fortnite for you rich billionaires, please. W what kind of mind spends so much time thinking about destruction and death and negativity and then and then and then deals and he has pictures where he's posing with Steve Bannon. What are, what are we doing? Like we have all these people controlling us right now. They're actually they've created the platforms on which we are speaking right now and sharing our thoughts. At at what point and how do we tell them enough is enough? Don't we? Ha we have to, don't we? Yeah. I think we do. <laughs> How we do it is is a bit more difficult. Like, you know, I've certainly been inspired in recent years in seeing um how there has just been kind of like a broader critical turn on the tech industry. You know, obviously we had, I think, a long period of time where there was a lot of hype 
around tech, um, a lot of uncritical coverage, um, a lot of people believing the narratives of these tech companies um, because it was essential to or, or important to um, economic growth and, and jobs and all these sorts of things, right? Especially after the 2008 recession, the tech industry is really positioned as the sector that's going to j- drive investment and growth and jobs and things into the future. And so for a number of years, they're there certainly is a little bit of criticism, but it doesn't get very much attention, right? Um, in that moment, because there is this kind of general um, desire, this general kind of push to accept what the tech industry is serving up to us. Um, and certainly since around 2015, 16 and Cambridge Analytica in 2018, there has been much more of a turn on the tech industry, a recognition that, you know, just having all that hype, not thinking critically about the technologies and the companies behind them has really served us poorly in many ways whether it is the impacts of Facebook, whether it is Amazon's treatment of workers, whether it's what Uber has done carving workers out of, you know, workers' rights and employment protections and things like that, um, and and many other um, consequences of just letting kind of the tech industry do whatever it wanted, right? Um, And so I think that there's been a lot of waking up to that. Um, I think that the tech industry and people in it are increasingly having their own kind of reaction or response to it, um, especially since the pandemic, um, especially since Trump, uh, you know, left office. Um, They seem to have seen that as their moment to kind of reassert their narrative, their importance, their dominance, their power. Um, You know, that's really well represented in Mark Andreessen's essay in March or April of 2020, It's Time to Build, which is really kind of an argument that the tech industry needs to be using its power and its influence and its money to shape society even more than it already has. Um, But I think that along with recognizing that letting these tech companies off the hook has really been a mistake, I think that the workers in the industry are also paying attention to that. And you're seeing more of them kind of organize and, you know, demand changes from the companies that they work at, um, but also adopt a more critical view toward the industry as a whole. And so I think that that is important as well, not to say that, you know, that alone is going to completely up in the the tech industry or or something like that. But I think that these are positive developments that are, um, you know, at least sending us in kind of the right direction to some degree. you know, some of it is done in a very kind of, um, how would you say, uh, self-serving way, um, you know, because some of these people who worked at the tech companies will come out and offer some, uh, you know, very kind of milk toast critiques, but are still generally kind of um, pushing and promoting and agreeing with the general narrative of Silicon Valley that the that allowing technology to continue to progress is how we improve society, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, I think that more people are even waking up to that. And I think that the criticism is important. I think that kind of the wake up on the tech industry is important. Um, and so hopefully that does help us to rein some of these things in in the future, even though there's still a lot of power and and a lot of other things that we have to deal with there as well. Hmm. Yeah, I like to me, like as an anthropologist who studies propaganda, um, what you are describing to me is a counter-propaganda movement. So, you know, we're receiving all these narratives, we're being force-fed these narratives, um, and in, you know, an unprecedented way in terms of their ability to target us on our most kind of vulnerable levels because, the people pushing propaganda at us 
have profiles on us individually in which um, they can they can target very literally kind of like ads and narratives that are intentionally dispersed to particular profiles of people that they have made up. So this is something that I've studied um, actually quite recently. You brought up Cambridge Analytica. And um, so I actually, I, I did some recon work last year and I um, interned for a senator here in Australia. I really, it was during the Australian federal election and I really wanted to know how um, a politician tries to get re-elected in a federal election, a senator in particular. So, um, yeah, I got to go in and kind of see how they campaigned and what kind of strategies they used. What did they talk about? How did they talk about their constituents? And what I found that I really wasn't expecting to find was the... um, the whole Cambridge analytical scandal is actually just, um, it, it's standard tech now. It, it is absolutely standardized across politics. Now it's not just the Trump campaign who used it or even, you know, like you can go back and actually Obama's um, campaign team were, I don't know if they were the first, but they were like probably the most successful to use it. At the time, but these days, um, as was told to me when I, you know, questioned the ethics of um, exploiting psychological profiles and geographical profiles um, in order to push what is essentially political marketing on people, I was told by the senatorial team that everybody else uses it. So it just wouldn't make sense not to. They'd be they'd be at such a disadvantage. Um, and yeah, it really hit me. I was like, wow, we had this huge, huge publicity around Cambridge Analytica and what they were doing and how they were psychologically targeting us. And what happened? Everyone else jumped on the bandwagon. Yeah, we didn't because we didn't because it was just the it. bad guys. Because only the bad guys has it. As long as the good guys use the same thing, then it's fine. That's. If everyone has a gun, you see, if everyone oh, has yeah. a gun, that's, we you know, that's what everyone's guys. safe and stuff. It's so, just so unfortunate there. that 50% mm-hmm. of the population thinks the other 50% is the bad guy. That's yeah, that, that, they're the thrilled. bad guy. It's, um, yeah, that is interesting. I was, I was listening to Audrey Tang the other day, um, uh, the Minister of, uh, Culture, of Digital Affairs in Taiwan, who is an incredible person, uh, and a, a hacker or a hacktivist who has uh, completely uh, redesigned the way communities are, you know, digitally engaged in forming better, more functioning societies and we essentially take control of their own issues in real time. Uh, you're, you're sort of crowdsourcing democracy um, because instead of just allowing them to uh, engage at the point of no return, which is an election essentially, in which you're fed a bunch of idiots who are ultimately inter- interchangeable um, and will ultimately only do what they want anyway. Why not give people a sort of real-time plat- platform and allow them to create, to turn democracy into a Wikipedia of sorts? Um, 
and so I have hope in people like this, you know, and, and, I'm, and I'm really, really happy to hear that you also have hope that things are and that you see a, a change of direction in, in people in, in the tech industry, Paris. Uh, it's, and, and I'm at the same time equally dismayed to see that people on the good side of politics, uh, I assume, uh, Chantal, you wouldn't be. <laughs> Um, interning for far right wing fascist or something, but <laughs> but still great like anthropological study there because they <laughs> like maybe they, one day yeah, to them, like, they, they are people who don't understand technology. They're still lagging. <laughs> they, they don't have an. That's they don't have far, Paris. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> but they don't have an Audrey Tang in in Australia. We don't have one here in the UK. Uh, the U US certainly doesn't have that, and never will allow anyone like that anywhere near the seats of power. Um, so there's a fight ahead. But I, I'm I'm. I wanted to thank you for this book and I, I want everyone to read Road to Nowhere. Uh, what Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About the Future of Transportation by Paris Marx. Um, and also tune in to their absolutely brilliant podcast, uh, Tech Won't Save Us. Uh, but as we've established, it might. It just might, right? It could. <laughs> Who knows? We'll see. <laughs> but <laughs> the technology, you know, the tech might be part of it, but ultimately we need the politics that go along with it. And that's the only way we're going to save anything. People will save us, maybe. Yeah, that's hopefully. the next podcast. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Paris, for coming on the show. Um, Chantal, we need to get one of those political minds on the show at some point. Shall we? Someone. someone is, maybe Audrey would join us on the show. We'll, Pauline um, Hansen. <laughs> <laughs> That's only funny if you know who Pauline Hansen is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Jorg is over there, does it? <laughs> Good times. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, we'll do it. We'll, we'll do all the things. We'll find out eventually who will save us. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll keep asking the questions. And, you know, we're called, it's a tapestry. We are, we are asking beautiful minds like Paris what they think might might help and then we can collect enough tidbits to kind of stick some things together and maybe get a little bit of a roadmap and we're building networks um, my uh history professor a bit of a mentor to me he is specifically a um person who specializes in revolution and he told me that revolution happens very slowly and then all at once and he told me that networks are what start and sustain revolutions. And so I see what all of us are doing and what Paris was talking about, about, you know, the people who work in the tech industry really collaborating together and pushing back. We, in our criticisms, in our conversations, in our actions, in our activisms, we are creating networks of pushback, of power, of counter-narratives. And we are, um, we are building each other. We are building strength and power in directions of love and more utopian directions for society. So, yeah, I think that we're on the road to somewhere. I believe that. I have to believe that. You know, no one wants to be on a road to nowhere. 
<laughs> Paris, thank you. Chantal, we'll fight we'll fight these fuckers, won't we? We'll get there. Oh, um, we'll it down. Absolutely. Um and uh yeah, let's just keep sharing stories and um meeting amazing people and and what we're we've set out to do on this show is to meet them from across every spectrum, you know, whether it's the creative industries or in your case, um, you know, looking into the, the platforms and the people that, you know, that also now enable us to have these creative industries. Um, they're not all bad, these things, but let's bring context and meaning um, and empathy back into all of this, this human game of ours. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Directional is hosted by Jörg Tittle in London, Chantal Ryan in Adelaide, and produced by Paul Bennon in Los Angeles for Rapid Eye Movers. The theme song was composed by Oliver Krauss and Frally Hines. Follow us on Twitter at Directional Show and listen to past episodes at directional.show. See you next time.